Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. We're in a mess, Mike. Uh, absolutely. Now, of course, the uh, big furore uh, is over testing. So uh, let's look at the BBC, the bastion of truth here. Uh, coronavirus tackling testing delays, number one priority, says Minister. Another article from them, testing problems leaving families in limbo. Uh, another one. Uh, well, this is news round for younger viewer, uh, readers. Uh, why is there a problem with getting a test for coronavirus in the UK? Uh, not just the BBC. Here's the Daily Mail. Uh, parents, teachers and children will go to the back of the queue as Matt Hancock reveals plan to ration swabs. Uh, as it emerges that three of the top 49 COVID hotspots have slots available and the shambles are set to last weeks. Um, so this is what the mainstream press is saying, Brian, and it looks to me very much like uh, the Behavioural Insight team have been working uh, overtime on this because this is, of course, designed to drive demand for why is the government not providing these tests? We yep. will need the tests. The tests are absolutely vital. It's turning it round. It's it's not do we need these things? It's uh, we're desperate because we can't get them fast enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And now why would they need to do that? Well, the sheer scale, as we mentioned last Friday, the sheer, sheer scale of the spending on this uh, Operation Moonshot, as it's being described. We, we talked about this last Friday. £100 billion in daily COVID testing. Now, £100 billion, just to put that in perspective, is two-thirds of the NHS budget. Now, this is the same NHS which at the moment, or up during the COVID crisis, uh, hasn't been treating people with cancer uh, or needing treatment for heart attacks and these kinds of things. Uh, but we're going to spend another £100 billion on daily testing. And on Friday, Patrick was uh, making the point that Boris had, had said this. Uh, through that moonshot of daily testing, everyone gets a pregnancy-style test, a rapid turnaround test in the morning. 15 minutes later, you know whether you're infectious or not. So this is what they're aiming for. Uh, you head into work, you do a test, and you work out whether you're going to actually get into the office or not. And he also said you may not know whether you are infected or not, but you know whether you're infectious or not. And that gives you a kind of passport. That's very important. A freedom to mingle with everybody else who's similarly not infectious in a way that's currently impossible. Now, uh, you passed me this uh, earlier, Brian. This is the Brit British Medical Journal's coverage of the leaked documents which exposed uh, Operation Moonshot in the first place. Uh, and uh, once those documents were out, then the government began talking about it uh, in more detail. So let's just uh, run through what the British Medical Journal uh, is highlighting here. Uh, first of all, the leaked documents say that the UK will carry out between 200,000 and 800,000 tests a day between September and December uh, 2020. Well, of course, they're not making that target at the moment, which, uh, but they're driving public demand for it. So they're going to provide that. And then from de uh, December, the plans propose increasing daily capacity to between two and four million. Now, this morning on the Today programme, uh, a former um, um, Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, was saying, you know, two million seems like a reasonable number. That means that you could give everybody a test at least once a month. Um, the documents, the leaked documents then go, go on to say that there would be a full rollout in early 2021 to 10 million tests a day to enable people to return to and maintain normal life. Well, of course, that's, that's the great lie because this is not normal life and will not be just because they're tests. In uh, fact, it will be abnormal. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, it goes on. Uh, at this stage, weekly testing would be made available progressively to the whole population to allow people to go to high-risk events by using a digital passport to show that they've tested negative for the virus. Now, we've been talking about this for months. It is coming. It's absolutely clear that it's coming. And if people don't want it, then they're going to have to start talking about it in much, uh, much more often than they are at the moment. But we're, we're talking about an app on a phone uh, which may give you a green, an amber, and a red status. So if, if you tested negative, you get green. Uh, if you tested positive, you get red. Uh, and if you are out of scope of the test, so in other words, if, if they're aiming for a test which is uh, once a month um, and the test has an expiry date, then you head towards uh, amber. amber. And of course, if you are an amber or a red status, then you're probably not going to get into work. You're not going to get into the theaters. You're not going to get into the cinemas. Uh, or anything else that you might want to do. So it goes on to say, under potential partners for increasing laboratory capacity, the documents list only the company uh, at AstraZeneca. So they're talking about partnerships uh, in terms of this, but under logistics and warehousing, the documents list potential partners as Boots, Sainsbury's, DHL, uh, Kuhn and Nagel, uh, G4S and Serco. So this, where's this 100 billion pounds going to? Well, it's going to those uh, wonderful companies. Uh, and uh, so we could to testing technology listed in the documents includes QRT PCR, endpoint PCR, LAMP, LAMPOR, uh, literal, lateral flow antigen test, uh, and whole genome sequencing. Uh, and of course, we've highlighted the fact that uh, Nanopore is the, the lead company for the LAMPOR technology. Uh, and they're particularly keen on the LAMPOR technology because it's, uh, it, it returns a result quite quickly. Uh, and then in terms of DNA, well, here we've got DNA Nudge. We've highlighted these on a number of occasions. And again, we're heading towards 30 minutes, 45 minutes to get a result. But the question is, what kind of result are you going to get? Um, so then it goes on um, as this uh, testing for access to certain spaces features heavily in the documents with reference to immunity virus-free passports likely to be available through an app. Uh, a negative test result or potentially a positive antibody result may inform not just whether you could attend an inpatient appointment, but if you could go to work that day, access a venue, get on a flight or visit an elderly relative. Uh, they state that opening up the economy and allowing the population to return something closer to normality would cost over £100 billion to deliver. Uh, the figure is not broken down. And again, uh, it is staggering amount of money because we are talking about two thirds of the entire annual budget of the NHS. Which is just magic. It's magically appeared from somewhere. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So where is this hundred billion come from? That's that's a question. But this is massive control over our lives. To call it fascist, we've been using that word because it's appropriate at some levels. But this is control over people's lives that I would say no country in the world has ever seen before. We are to be controlled every moment by the government who will tell us whether we can shop, whether we can visit a venue, whether we can go to work, whether we can meet with more than six people. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome to the programme. Th that is a good point. Of course, all the criticism is on China at the moment, but uh, this, as Patrick said on Friday, this is uh, way ahead of where China is. And this is where we often get flack in the comments, isn't it, Mike, when Brian often says, uh, this is dangerous, this is fascism. There's a growing contingent of people in the comments saying, no, no, our enemies are Jewish communists. And uh, I don't see much of a Jewish plot involved here. Uh, nor do I see 
only a communistic approach or a, just a fascistic approach. I see a very complicated multi-web um, approach, really, to what's going on. But you can boil it down to real basics here with the last slide you showed. To get us back to pseudo-normality, quasi-normality, will cost 100 million, sorry, 100,000 million yeah. pounds. Right, that, that's holding the nation to ransom uh, using its own tax budget, isn't it? I can't see any other way to describe that. This is pretty much like when you've, should we say, taken the pill and understood what uh, the likes of NATO are. It's protection racketeering. Uh, give us all your money or you get it. Uh, that's what it boils down to. And you know, sorry to hammer on about this, but we're getting an increasing amount of comments saying, you know, name the real enemy, the Jews. I do not see Jewish domination in all of these angles. Uh, no, well, neither do I, but uh, but that's uh, that's certainly what a lot of people think. A lot of people think that we are getting closer to lifting the lid off how this thing is being driven. For me, it's always look at what the individual says and what they do. You, you identify the people that are driving this stuff by what they say and what they do. If you go by a label, you don't get close to it. But we're going to have a little bit of a look in this news at the deeper aspects of who's driving some of this policy. Uh, now, let's, uh, let's move on to this. Get your flu shot, because this is the other uh, big news this morning. You've got to get your flu shot. And why is that? Well, because uh, uh, scientists at uh, Max Planck Institute have said that flu may increase the spread of COVID-19. Uh, using a mathematical model. Well, we know how well mathematical models have run in the past on this. Uh, so they are, uh, this is Max Planck Institute, also the Institute for Institute Pasteur in Paris, uh, using a mathematical model to study the first months of corona pandemic in Europe. Uh, and they show that the decrease in COVID-19 cases in spring was not only related to countermeasures, but also the end of the flu season. Right, okay. Uh, so uh, let's have a look at what they're saying here. They're saying in the UK, well, no, this is uh, Bupa, sorry, saying that in the UK, people usually get seasonal flu between December and March. So I'm not quite clear how that works uh, if, the, if the decrease in COVID-19 cases uh, was also because of the end of the flu season because the, the peak was in April. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, influenza may have increased transmission of the coronavirus by an average of two and a half times is what they're saying. Uh, but here's the key point. Uh, as we pointed out in this program before, um, there are numerous scientific papers that make the point that if you take a vaccine for one respiratory illness, it can actually amplify the effects of other respiratory illnesses. So here's an example, uh, increased risk of non-influenza respiratory virus infections associated with receipt of inactivated influenza vaccine. Uh, being protected against influenza, TIV patient uh, recipients may lack temporary non-specific immunity that protected against other respiratory diseases. So the question then is, uh, these guys have published something on the basis of a mathematical model and as a result they are absolutely demanding and what they're saying is here they emphasize the potential importance of flu vaccinations as a possible extra protection against COVID-19 but the scientific literature doesn't show that that would provide extra protection it would provide it would provide worse protection in fact uh, but that's on the basis of them running a mathematical model so um, this is 
this reliance on mathematical models is not bringing us in the right direction? I think it's part of the um, science-based answer, Mike, isn't it? That's the game. You've got to try and get some form of science, even if it's quasi-science, into the equation in order to convince the stupid general public that uh, they're going to need what the government's going to hand out. Absolutely. Now, we've already mentioned behavioural stuff this morning and here's another headline this is pure propaganda from the daily mill here uh, designed to uh, generate a behavioral response the headline is second wave won't be as bad as the first experts unnamed experts by the way experts say increase in covid cases is normal new treatments and local lockdowns will keep it controlled and tough restrictions will do more to harm uh, sorry will do more harm to people than the, the disease but the point here is new treatments and local lockdowns will keep it controlled. So ramp up the fear with the headline, second wave won't be as bad perhaps, but it only won't be as bad if you conform to what the government says. So this is all about behavioral stuff. So they're suggesting that local lockdowns, social distancing would reduce the impact. There are also hopes it says that a vaccine would be ready by early as next spring uh, and that these things together will uh, will reduce the, the dangers. Um, so, uh, it's still using fear to drive the behavioural change. And that's that's coming straight from the Behavioural Insights uh, team, Mike. So unbelievably dangerous that these unaccountable people working at the heart of government to change our behaviour and our thoughts. And we don't really, well, we know who some of them are, but apparently we don't know who, who, who the rest of them are. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, let's move on to this, because, of course, if you remember a couple of months ago, the, the British government had to uh, reduce the number of uh, the total number of deaths because they had, had to admit that they were overcounting the number of deaths. Well, uh, in Scotland, the overcounting has, base, has been uh, to the number of people that are in hospital. So the number of patients in hospital, according to the Herald here, uh, with COVID in Scotland has been slashed from 262 to just 48 following an overhaul of how they are counted. Nicola Sturgeon confirmed that from now on, statistics for the number of patients in hospital with COVID will be based only on people who have tested positive for the virus within the previous 28 days. Now, if you remember, the reason that the government was overcounting uh, the number of deaths was because they were counting people as COVID fatalities, uh, even if they had uh, been cured of COVID and had subsequently died of something else. In other words, if you had a t positive test at any point, no matter how, how much further in the future you, you passed away, that would still be counted as a COVID death. This is exactly the same scenario in Scotland then. Uh, she said that, uh, Sturgeon said that uh, this would mean a smaller a small number of COVID patients will take longer to recover and spend longer in hospital as a result, uh, will be missing from the daily count. Uh, and uh, she said that the previous tally, which had been used at, since the outset of the pandemic, uh, had become less accurate over time because it was including lots of patients who had previously tested for COVID, uh, but had since recovered and were in hospital for other completely unrelated well, that's uh, the Herald. That's actually the Herald uh, headline there, is it, Mike? It, it is. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, there we go. So what's next? Well, it's a, it's a look at um, some of the aspects of what's going on in government. People are asking the question, who is driving things at the moment? We thought we'd have a little look at how the system is working at the moment in UK. We'll also add that, of course, UK Column is looking to wake people up who are perhaps um, 
just starting to realize that something's wrong in the country so we could go through to the fourth industrial revolution we could talk about a one world government uh, we could be talking about agenda 2030 but we think we should start with the basics what can we show where we can already ask questions about what's going on so i'm going to put the word fascist back up on screen because of course it was breibart with this wonderful headline boris johnson has led a fascist coup against the united kingdom I disagree with this a little bit because I don't think Boris Johnson has led it. He's simply the pu puppet. But what we do know is that COVID is being used as the diversion and the wedge and the hammer to uh, enable this policy to come through. So if we have a look at the government, um, who's really driving it? We've got some of the components that we might talk about. We could talk about Parliament and the Privy Council and the Lords. Well, the Lords don't seem to be operating at the moment. Parliament's not really operating because, of course, they're so socially distanced that they're all at home. Um, Conservative Party, is that working at the moment? Possibly. Um, Dominic Cummings, certainly very busy. Civil service, sort of working. Hedge funds and banks, well, I think we could say they're on reheat at the moment because, of course, the banks have got their fingers into every bit of the pie. Um, with the COVID collapse and the COVID recovery. So we'll see. But uh, this was an amazing quote which came into us today. It's from a Scottish local councillor who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, they said, during the height of COVID measures, emergency powers were used and local democracy was suspended. The decisions were made behind closed doors by a secretive elite and councillors were excluded from the process. Now that's quite a statement. Alex, I'm just gonna ask you to respond to this. Uh, this was given to us this morning. We're very, very confident of the accuracy of this quote, the accuracy of this quote. And this ties in with a report that was actually out on one of their media channels. I've forgot the gentleman's name, Eamon somebody who was talking about D-notices. and yeah, Eamon Holmes, that was. Eamon Holmes, thank you, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Uh, was talking about denotice and emergency powers. Have we missed something? We seem to be in an emergency situation. Well, we are in an emergency paradigm and have been for decades, probably before the Second World War and certainly since it. And the uh, British planning for this always takes uh, a more circuitous uh, and a more um, fudged route than the United States or certainly than civil law jurisdictions. They would just say the mayor commands, commandeers the police and the council. Uh, Britain has dressed it up in terms of civil contingencies. And again, without um, getting party political, I know we'll get flack if we, if we take the side of one party or another, but it is incontrovertible that it was under conservative governments, Heath and Thatcher, that local government with councillors in the lead was first of all broken down into fewer levels and then had its budgets taken away. And finally, in the 90s onwards, we went over to a cabinet model uh, of your district council and your county council, or in most cases, people just have a unitary authority now, a county borough council in many cases. Um, it's explicit and has been since the Blair era, so it's not all under the Conservatives, it's a civil service continuity plan really, uh, that councillors are there for show to be elected, but when things get serious, permanent uh, civil service equivalents at local level take uh, the reins of power away. So, you know, this is that Scottish local governments followed its own path. There's used to be more transparent in England, perhaps less so now, but we do seem to think, see these things cropping up in Scotland more patently now. 
than in other parts of the United Kingdom. But no, this is of a piece with the way local government has gone for a pretty long time across the English speaking world, actually. Right. OK, well, we know that all of that is taking place while COVID is going on. So let's just remind ourselves of the sort of thing that Matt Hancock is saying. This is on his Twitter page. It's a pinned tweet. He says the first line of defence against coronavirus is social distancing, hands, face, space and the rule of six. This is the, the intelligent statement by Matt Hancock. But if we go back to 2000, and 18, he was saying something rather different. Let's have a look at it. So uh, this was a report here. Health Secretary Matt Hancock unveils the membership of the Health Tech Advisory Board. Uh, this was part of, of the quote from that article. The Health Secretary has unveiled the membership of a new panel aimed at, quote, guiding the delivery of his plans to make the NHS the, most, the world's most advanced healthcare service. And the Health Tech Advisory Board is made up of academics, clinicians and technical experts, and it will meet for the first time the 19th of November to discuss new ways to improve patient care and reduce NHS employees' workloads. Well, all of that's clearly been achieved at the moment, Mike, as we can see and understand when we talk to NHS people. But what was he saying? Well, this is what he was saying. I want the UK to have the most advanced health tech ecosystem in the world. That starts with improving technology and IT systems in the NHS and creating a culture of innovation so patients can benefit from cutting edge treatments while reducing the workload of staff. Well, the workload's gone up. The treatment of patients is non-existent at the moment. He went on, the new future-focused Health Tech Advisory Board will bring together technical experts, clinicians and academics to identify where change needs to happen and be an ideas hub for how we can improve patient outcomes and to make the lives of NHS staff easier. So that's not exactly what we're seeing around uh, COVID. But uh, stay with it because this is the Health Tech Advisory Board and as always, UK Column likes to know who people are. So we've only got time just to pull out some of them. But these are some of the names that caught our attention. We had a lady called uh, Nicole Junkerman, founder of NGF Holdings, an international finance and investment company. So straight away, we can show that where Matt Hancock is interested is where the money and the uh, hedge funds and finance is coming in. We've got Daniel Korski, co-founder and CEO of Public, a venture capital firm. And we've got Parker Moss, health technology entrepreneur in residence at F Prime and Eight Roads. So why should we be interested in who Matt Hancock is in bed with? Well, these are some of the people that he's dealing with in this new organisation. So uh, this lady is fascinating because she was taking trips on Epstein's Lolita Express aircraft. And we'd like to know, apart from the hot investments, that's her business dealings, not her, private equity funds, media and sports investment. What other interests she got? Well, of course, we don't know. We only know that she was appointed by Mr. Hancock. Here's Daniel Korski from Public. He says across the world, the modern state is undergoing an extraordinary transformation. A new generation of technology is changing the way a nation or indeed a local government collects taxes, delivers services, distributes welfare, maintains security and more. Everything is changing, according to Mr. Skors uh, Korski. 
in, a sh in time, and perhaps a surprisingly short time, the whole way a state engages with its citizens will be different. That's interesting. How did he know that, Mike? Uh, Public was founded to drive this change. That's how he knows it. Uh, supporting new technologies to transform public services. Well, public's part of the story, but this is the rest of it, uh, because what was he doing before? He was deputy head of policy in the number 10 policy unit. Alex, very quickly, I'm going to say to you that when we look at our local councils and councillors, they are simply not in the game. They're part of the puppet show, while these big financial corporatist people are driving the agenda and they say our whole world is going to be transformed. Well, indeed, uh, local councillors or members of parliament at national level often find that their election doesn't count for as much when they get into the chamber as they thought it did, because there are whole rule books full of even just the official ways to obfuscate and deny answers and deny obedience to elected representatives, never mind the secret networks off the books. Um, you put on uh, a slide a few moments ago um, a, a table of three by three possible uh, culprits for getting us into the COVID mess. And what unites them all is the crown. We maybe not uh, may not be able to give an ultimate answer to the question who's running the coup, but we certainly can answer constitutionally and historically who's responsible. And I'm afraid the answer is the crown, because what ties together all the nine culprits you put on screen is that they have crown indulgence or a crown charter or a public or private mandate from the crown to do all the things they do and are ultimately responsible to the crown from which they devolve their authority, ultimately from the sovereign people. Indeed. Well, let's follow on through uh, this uh, board for health tech uh, because we've got this lady, Adrian Harris. Um, why should we be interested about her? Well, um, it was the sorry, she was not actually on the board. It was a colleague in F prime. But my point here is that if we go to look at what F prime is, uh, we instantly find the connection. So here's Adrian Harris, professor of the practice of the University of Michigan, as well as a Gates Foundation senior research fellow. So every direction we go with health income Gates. And on Monday, we were pointing out that if we had a look at what uh, um, the Cabinet Office was up to in 2013 uh, with regard to exports out to the Middle East, uh, we quickly found that there was another hedge fund at work at that time. And we pointed out that David Cameron was now involved. Well, I'm going to say well done civil service world and this lady Becky Smith because on the 13th of August she did a lot of the research for us so here she is Cummings and number 10 policy unit to move to cabinet office the move is seen as part of Cummings inspired government changes as top advisor has wanted more control over the civil service by Downing Street so Downing Street apparently confirmed that Boris Johnson's private office and political aides will take up residence at 70 Whitehall in September in moves that come as the Cabinet Office. Uh, Permanent Secretary Alex Chisholm works on the government's long-anticipated plan for civil service reform. I don't think this has been debated in Westminster. Uh, certainly the wider public are not aware of it. We need Becky to tell us about it. So well done, this lady. Cabinet office officials have been told the move, part of reforms driven by Cummings, is intended to drive culture change in the civil service. Uh, we can have a discussion about what that is, uh, but I don't think it promises uh, to help 
the state of the nation. The moves may essentially create a de facto department for the prime minister in the cabinet office as number 10 staffers will move into offices that currently house the cabinet office economic and domestic affairs secretariat or eds which coordinates cross-vital working on the government's domestic policy agenda and lastly the overhauled collaboration hub will be equipped with co-working desks and and television screens displaying real-time <laughs> performance data now what are they doing here well we get a clue from this man mark sweeney director general of the cabinet secretariat the move would ensure civil servants were as efficient as possible in delivering the government's agenda we want to make the join from policy idea through to making a difference on the ground as seamless as swift as possible and mike i'm going to suggest this is absolutely what we're seeing with covid one minute there's a discussion in in the cabinet office or somewhere in boris johnson's office and that policy has been enacted on the ground at the speed of light there's no debate so that's all out um representative mps that's old hat that's long gone we've now got a very different machine at work and so if we take the old model of what we thought was driving government we can replace that now with this cell at the middle the department for the uh, for the prime minister the collaboration hub and we can show very easily that this is where the influence of the hedge funds the banks and the global corporations is coming and they want their policy pushed straight through the civil service and i'll just end by saying this is the second iteration of this treason at the heart of government because of course we can go back to the days of john prescott uh, when the trojan horse through the office of the deputy prime minister was common purpose and we could show then that uh, common purpose was helping to bring in the influence of the banks and the global corporations in order to transform and affect the civil service so i think uh, when uh, david scott is using his expression that we've got a government of occupation we can start to show what it is and where it is quite easily without getting embroiled in labels um, okay if you like what the uh, uk column does and you would like to support us then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community where there are various options to help us there and just a quick reminder that uh, it's only a couple of days now if you want to uh, offer any kind of feedback to the government on the changes to human medicine regulations if you want more details about that have a look at uh, monday's program uh, the url for uh, getting to the consultation uh, which is online is on screen at the moment uh, and uh, that'll take you there you can leave your thoughts um, okay Alex uh, where does that take us uh, this is an article from Christian Concern saying pastor told not to offend gay pride as mob threatened to burn down his church this was reported by Christian Concern on the 8th of September the image there is by Christian Concern's uh, YouTube channel with the title of the same name same wording you can find that on YouTube and here interviewed in his pastor study is Josh Williamson originally from Queensland Australia in fact in 2013 if memory serves uh, he was a minister in Perth in Scotland David Scott's own fair city and he was open air evangelizing in the high street uh, with not even any amplification and was frog marched off to the police station by what turned out to be, as we covered at the time, um, a policewoman who'd been imported specially from Glasgow who didn't know the Perth 
street layout. So that says something about the targeting of the man. After a spell back in Australia, he's now pastoring at the other end of the country in Newquay, Cornwall. And um, the story starts when he put up two Facebook posts uh, which said, Hallelujah, the uh, Gay Pride March cannot go ahead because of COVID regulations. And I think there was some reference to sinners in there. If you put that slide back up on the right hand side, Christian Concern um, has, a, uh, has the wording that uh, sin should not be celebrated. That, that is as, as uh, daring as he gets. This is not your 1970s minister saying sodomites will burn eternally in the lake of fire. Um, hallelujah, the Pride March isn't going ahead. Sin shouldn't be celebrated. Now, what's the upshot of this? Uh, this is the end of the Christian Concern article. And it says that another user perform, threatened, this is someone in response to the Facebook posts, threatened to perform a mass sexual orgy at the church. Another, because we've already read that there have been threats to burn the church, as you'll see in a moment, calling on the group, that's the Facebook group, to assault anyone who handed them a leaflet. That would be by New Key Baptist Church. Reporting the threats to Devon and Cornwall Police, which sponsors Cornwall Pride, Josh, the pastor, was told that the situation was complex and that the police did not believe the threat would materialise. The police stated that they were working with both sides to pacify the situation, but also stated to Josh, the pastor, that he should make sure he, quote, did not offend anyone in the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transsexual community in future to avoid breaking the law. OK, so if you offend someone, you're breaking the law by that report. Here are the screen caps of the uh, threats in question on a Facebook group. Let's burn a church. Uh, babe, would you be mad if I burned down a church? I'll drive, let's burn a church, let's burn a church. Gingers unite to burn a church. Now then, what comes next after this is that, uh, get the next slide up, I put some questions to Devon and Cornwall Police. The text is a little small, perhaps you can read that, Mike. Uh, well, so it says the questions that I'm putting to you uh, for your right of reply are as follows. What factual claims, if any, in the above report are inaccurate? Uh, what within the meaning of policing law and practice is complex about the receipt of, uh, by police of complaints about published threats to assault a person or burn down premises? Uh, how does Devon and Cornwall Police regard it as possible for an individual to make sure not to offend anyone in a given category? And what do we have in response to that? We have, um, I've put here deliberately Chief Constable Sean Sawyer of Devon and Cornwall Police uh, in the picture. Um, I got a response from uh, quickly, despite the COVID secure low staffing levels at Devon and Cornwall Police's uh, media units, I did get a friendly response quite quickly from a polite lady. And so she said, or rather she gave me uh, an unsigned statement from a police spokesperson which says the following following concerns expressed between individuals from the community and subsequent tensions police officers have spoken to all parties involved and advice has been given there are no other associated ongoing policing matters so i followed that up with uh, if you'll do the honors again these questions uh, so it says uh, arson is not separately recorded for Corn Cornwall, but the latest annual figures for criminal damage, including arson for the county, are 4,409 recorded instances. Your neighbourhood fire service, Devon and Somerset, states that England has 1,600 acts of arson in an average week, causing an average of 50 injuries and two deaths. As Devon and Cornwall have among the very lowest crime rates in England, and the two counties' population is around 3% of the English total, there cannot be more than a few dozen cases of arson per week in your force area. 
and instances of prima facie public uh, instigation to commit arson for ideological reasons must be rare indeed in Cornwall. Given that such public calls for arson are surely exceptional locally, can you confirm that Chief Constable Sean Sawyer was personally aware, while police attention was current, that the threat made in this case was arson? And what came back, this time from the head of the media unit, I'm withholding the name because I certainly don't want people to send rude messages, that doesn't help anyone, is this, and we put Sean Sawyer, the Chief Constable, in the photograph as well, again, because we're asking whether he was aware uh, that the threat made was arson. So the police response, or rather the response from presumably unsworn media people, I don't think I got anywhere near a sworn police constable in this question, is, I am sure for fullness of reporting, you will be approaching Cornwall Pride for their statement on this matter. But we won't be adding further to our statement. Over to Brian for a bit of a um, halfway question here. Brian, why does Devon and Cornwall Police expect a reporter to go to a homosexual organisation for balance on questions about threats to burn down a church? Uh, well, you could say uh, in one way that it's nothing to do with a gay, um, with a gay uh, take on this or not, because we find uh, continually that uh, we see media people not talk, talking in terms of what is truth and what is not truth or what is fact and not fact. Uh, they work on the principle of there are two sides to every story and that if you're a proper journalist, you have to go to both sides in order to balance the story. That's the general uh, reason that you're going to get a response like that. But in this case, I'm going to suggest you're getting a, a response like this, which is a very arrogant, dismissive response because Devon and Cornwall Police sponsor this organisation. So what you're seeing is, is open bias by Devon and Cornwall Police even though a very, very serious crime has been threatened, which is arson. That's my explanation. It's bias because uh, the police have not separated their powers. They are involved in the very people who've made these threats. It's a bit like the um, executive within the executive that you were just reporting on. And of course, like unlike the main executive, um, there's no... Um, responsibility there, uh, no uh, accountability. The same thing happens with the legislature within a legislature, as you would describe reporting from the Scottish uh, council system. Now, the next stage is that uh, Pink News, uh, the uh, reporting uh, or the, one of the reporting channels for news of, of, uh, of interest to homosexual and bisexual people had this, that uh, the Home Secretary had received a letter uh, urging her to deport uh, Pastor Williamson um, there, there is a provision for the Home Secretary to, to deport or refuse entry to those whose presence would not be conducive to, I think the phrase is, the public good or public order. And uh, here we have the councillor in uh, question who has been prompting providing us with a statement, which you'll see in a moment, uh, councillor Stephen Hick, one of the councillors for um, one of the wards of Newquay Town Council. Here is the Newquay voice carrying the headline, pastor in LGBT social media storm. You can see him holding up there the letter that he sent to the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel. He's holding it up outside the closed gates of Newquay Baptist Church, which is displaying a, past, uh, a, a poster, a scripture text poster that people will recognise from railway stations, although they're being banned from there now increasingly. Uh, this is a Trinitarian Bible Society poster with the uh, text from 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is germane to this because the whole point of the Baptist Church's uh, beliefs is that we're all sinners. Anyway, let's go on and see uh, what's, 
Councillor Hick is quoted at. I think this is not part of the letter to Priti Patel, but Councillor Hick's um, statement, which he uh, made when asked about uh, his uh, feelings and his letter by the local paper. He said, I call on every individual and business within Newquay to deny him, that's Pastor Williamson, and his church the ability to spread their odious message. Do not interact with them. Do not allow them to use your premises. Do not allow their message. So, uh, as advised by Devon and Cornwall Police, I did uh, contact Councillor Hick. He is also in Cornwall Pride, I think quite senior in it, so I gave him the opportunity also to provide um, a Cornwall Pride statement. Uh, I will emphasise that he uh, responded in a personal capacity. He wished that to be made quite clear, that he's not responding in a personal capacity. Um, I know that time is short, but if you just put that previous slide back on the slide, uh, the screen a moment, Mike, um, we will perhaps just read the uh, the third, people can freeze the screen and read the whole of it. Um, but I said, are you asking for Baptists to be shunned by shops and traders? If I've not misunderstood that, um, if that's what you're calling for, how would you identify or how would the shops identify Baptists to be banned or ostracized? And then finally, I said, um, would you like to comment on how far back in British history you think it goes or how legal it is that you're talking in your letter to the Home Secretary um, about the standards that we all have to live by in the UK, which apparently involve not calling homosexual sinners or not implying that homosexuality is a sin? Well, here is in full, as I promised to Councillor Hick, his response. I appreciate his timeliness and uh, his uh, courtesy in the response. Um, perhaps Mike can read this again. This is, I think, five slides worth, but it will be through it in a moment. So this is Councillor Hick's response. I've not asked for Baptists to be ostracised. In fact, I've been contacted by several Baptist ministers from Cornwall and Devon who are aghast at Mr. Williamson's warped description of members of the Newquay community as sinners who have offered their concern and effort to try to heal the harm. Uh, I've asked that people deny Mr. Williamson the ability to spread his hateful message, and that's completely legitimate. Newquay is a wonderful, loving, welcoming, and peaceful place, and it's Mr. Williamson who has travelled there to disrupt the peace. Uh, Newquay is home to fantastic people of many faiths and none, many of whom join the annual Pride Parade with several ministers representing their congregations. Our parish church proudly flies the Pride flag on Pride Day. Uh, it is Mr. Williamson who has maligned the faith of other Christians by uh, declaring that there's no such thing as a gay Christian, that he has no right to declare the faith of others void. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say, Mr. Williamson's words have caused genuine harm and I'm not about to expose those who have been harmed to further risk, but rest assured that every detail has been included in mine and others' complaints to the Home Secretary. So I will appreciate that Councillor Hick uh, took the time to respond quite quickly. Um, not everyone is of a legal frame of mind, uh, not even all councillors, nor are they supposed to be. They're supposed to represent the public and not all the public are legally minded. But I will say that it, it, it is concerning to me that he's been given a specific opportunity to talk about whether he's talking about the law or something deep rooted or not. Um, when he says that we cannot have people uh, saying that homosexuality is wrong. Um, but that's the long and the short of it. Uh, Pastor Williamson has also uh, done a follow-up uh, on the police response. This is my final slide on the matter, um, which again has been reported by Christian Concern. And again, uh, Devon and Cornwall Police were asked, uh, is Christian Concern biased in this? And they declined to answer. So Christian Concern is as neutral as we get to go on. And uh, what he says there, Pastor Williamson, is that the police are reinforcing the bullying tactic of the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transsexual transgender sorry, community and uh, he goes on to make some of the points that I think viewers will have been formulating in their minds as we went through this segment. Um, 
over to Brian or, or Mike, really, uh, to, to, to conclude what's going on here. Well, well, I was just going to say that, you know, I was speaking to uh, um, retired uh, state senator Richard Black uh, for Inside Vox yesterday. It's on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. And he was talking about uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the United States and how violent uh, that uh, those groups have become. And uh, what what I see here, Alex, is the same type of reaction. I mean, they're they're accusing somebody have of having made offensive statements, and different people with different views about how offensive those statements are. But speaking purely personally, I reserve the right to be offended because how else do I decide whether somebody's position on this particular issue is 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 right for me or not? And if you take away the ability of people to express themselves. I mean, I, I personally uh, wouldn't have expressed his his views in that way, but that's that's his right to do, and I will absolutely stand by everybody's right to 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 put their position out there because, you know, otherwise we can't. As I say, we cannot make a decision about what's right and what's wrong. But the reaction from some groups on in within what we might or what has be, become popularly called the woke community. Uh, which includes LGBT, but it also includes Black Lives Matter and other uh, some of these other organizations. It might include, for example, climate change campaigners as well, is becoming increasingly violent. And I think this is this is extremely dangerous uh, and uh, absolutely the wrong direction for them to go in. And uh, I think uh, others that might have a different view to them need to be careful about how they react to that violence, because that then becomes a very uh, that becomes a downward spiral very quickly. Yes. Well, I, I, I would just add to it that, of course, uh, it's already happening with our own debate. We're actually moving away from the critical issue. At one point, we've got somebody whose pride's been hurt. Sorry about the pun for that. But uh, nobody's suffered physical damage. They've just had their pride hurt. On the other hand, we've got somebody threatening arson. I'm sure if you, Mike, were to put out a tweet saying you were going to burn down somebody's house or I was going to do that, we would have Devon and Cornwall Police on our doorstep in no time at all. But the reason that Devon and Cornwall Police have not responded is because they are in bed with the organisation. There's no better way of putting it. They are tied into that organisation. So the police are now biased in their operations. And my message to gay people as a result of this is that if gay people think that the society being built is ultimately going to protect gay people, then I'm afraid you've got another thing coming because the ultimate agenda is to break down every human being totally. They do not want gay people. They want simple, simply machines to be doing whatever the, um, the fascist agenda is. And we can see this coming so clearly. So I think there's a lot of waking up to be done in the gay community because they think the new society is going to protect them. It isn't at all. Alex? Couldn't have put it better myself. Um, I think Sean, Sean Sawyer's in the frame now. We gave his media outfit a specific opportunity to clear him from any knowledge, but we do now have to assume, with thanks to the polite statements that we were given, to the extent they gave us information, uh, Councillor Hick gave us much more than the police, we have to assume that, Council, that Chief Constable 
Sean Sawyer knew perfectly well of these threats of arson and said, leave it, it's not a serious matter. And I think we have to go on and say he included that uh, because the uh, person against whom the threats were made was not in a protected category. Uh, and that's the right expression. We, we've got a lot of information coming in at the moment about how this applied psychol behavioural psychology is being used to change individuals, to change communities, to turn people against each other. That's what we're really starting to see here. Changes in the language, changes in sta standards of behaviour. And we'll try and explain more of what we're seeing happening and who, who are the people actually driving it. And our old friends Common Purpose will be at the background here. Of course, they were heavily involved with Devon and Cornwall Police. And it was at that stage that the diversity training programmes started. It was at that time we started to see police behaviour changing. And uh, what were we seeing? Them becoming cold and callous, I think the world is. Um, okay, let's move on then. Uh, the BBC annual report is out, uh, Brian, and uh, well, you'll be glad to know that the number of licence fee payers uh, has dropped by 237,000. Now, that's not nearly enough, so uh, you know people need to do better on that. Uh, but that means, uh, bearing in mind, a, a licence fee costs £157.50p. Uh, uh, that's a £40 million fall in their revenue. That's just not enough. We do have to do better. Uh, overall licence fee revenue, I'm not quite sure what the difference was uh, because it's a long report and uh, uh, I didn't quite get to the bottom of this. Overall license fee revenue fell by uh, 170 million, uh, which means that they've only got three and a half billion from the license fee uh, this year, Brian, That's a, it's a shame. Uh, they do get more from uh, the British government, uh, from direct uh, grants from people like the Foreign Office, for example, but uh, three and a half billion is their, their budget from the license fee. Um, and uh, well, Unfortunately, some people aren't able to get multi-million pound uh, uh, pay packets this year. They're going to have to take cuts. I think Gary Lineker has had his salary Four. cut to about one and a half million a year. Yeah, so. it was cut by 400,000, yeah, I think. Yeah, shocking. Tough. shocking. Tough for them, yeah, absolutely. So, look, uh, I'm going to say very strongly to everybody, we need to do better on this. Uh, we need uh, many more licence fees, uh, re you know, stop being paid. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, let's uh, a little bit of economic news. Uh, everybody would be glad to know that, uh, that uh, inflation is down to 0.2% uh, and uh, there's absolutely nothing can be done about it. Uh, I think it's only a short-term thing. But in the meantime, one of the questions that David Scott and I have been discussing between ourselves is what is driving the current uh, property market boom? Um, and, well, we had suggestions for it. Uh, some of them have been uh, uh, mentioned by this organisation. This is the, uh, the Centre for Economics and Business Research. Uh, and... Uh, well, they are they are saying that basically the the uh, sh despite the the biggest fall in GDP uh, forever, um, you know, house prices are going up, and they're really wondering what's driving this, just as we are. They're saying the July stamp duty cut is part of it. Also, what they're describing is pent up demand. So, in other words, uh, during the lockdown, of course, there were restrictions on people moving house. So part of the, the, the situation is that as we came out of lockdown and people were allowed to move house again, there was a sudden drive to get the deals done that weren't allowed to be done for the previous six months. Uh, and they're saying that uh, uh, since early on in the pandemic, government guidelines and regulations have uh, 
drastically curtailed repossession actions. So one of the points they're making is that there were just 161 mortgage repossession claims in quarter two, that typically there would be 6,000 in any quarter of the year. Uh, and finally, they're saying that, of course, part of it is the effect of the job retention scheme, the furlough scheme. Um, so, but this is their key point, and I think this uh, really is what they're saying, that it's pretty nuts for people to, going, to be going mad on buying houses at the moment because they are expecting, and any most economic commentators expecting, uh, a big fall in house prices uh, once the, uh, the, the sort of support for the economy has been withdrawn again, and they're expecting a 13.8% fall uh, next year, which we haven't seen large-scale negative equity for quite a number of years, Brian, but when it happens, it's pretty unpleasant yeah, for people yeah. uh, as banks become very hard about repossessions on the basis that they, if, if you get behind in your mortgage payments, uh, they, don't, they don't want to see, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the value of the property, which they may be able to repossess and sell, uh, dropping. Uh, no, below so the value of the mortgage, so, so uh, yeah. They're not going to be that helpful in, in, in easing you through the period of, uh, of uh, cash shortage. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now let's, uh, let's just come on to this, uh, this issue of, of Brexit and internal market bill. Again, now we talked about this uh, a couple of times in the last few days, uh, and of course the EU going mad about it. Uh, the UK must honour the agreement to get, a, uh, to get a free trade deal. So threats about the future relationship with the EU if uh, Boris and, uh, and co uh, go ahead with this internal market bill which is in breach of the divorce agreement, uh, is what we're being told. And here's Sky News here. Peers warn not to block internal market bill as Merkel ally brands U UK despot like North Korea. So this is the kind of vitriol that's going on. We did warn that this was coming because, of course, it was the same kind of vitriol we saw in the lead up to the, the divorce agreement uh, at the end of last year. Um, now, but the question that I had uh, for Alex this morning and, and still have really is where did this idea of a UK internal market come from in the first place? Because it's not something that I had ever heard of before. Um, well, in fact, uh, it seems to have come from this, which is the white paper on the, uh, on the, the, the bill, which has finally come to Parliament now. This is a UK internal market white paper. It was published in July uh, 2020. And I just want to uh, briefly run through what uh, what they're saying. Uh, they're saying, first of all, that the UK's internal market has been the bedrock of our shared prosperity with people, products, ideas and investment moving seamlessly between our nations. So here's the first point. It's absolutely uh, running from the beginning on the basis that we are uh, almost a, a, an EU-style uh, country, that the UK is a, 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 a connection of, of na separate nations. And of course, since the Acts of Union, uh, that hasn't been the case, at least not in the minds of, of the UK citizens. Uh, it goes on to say UK internal market dates back to the Acts of Union in 1706 and 1707 and has been a source of unhindered and open trade across the United Kingdom, one which pulls us together as a united country. It means that as a union, we're greater than the sum of our parts. But there's an acknowledgement here that we are parts. So already we can see the kind of thinking. But Alex, uh, first of all, I'm not aware that the Acts of Union mention internal market. No, the term is mid-20th century technocracy, Mike. Uh, it's the idea that uh, economists will dominate over elected politicians, as we've been covering all this hour, and technocracy envisaged that running through international and supranational bodies, chiefly the European Union. 
With that cover blown, the technocrats have to creep out of the woodwork and they reside in the cabinet office and the civil service, not across the channel. You're spot on and David Scott will be, I think, jumping on support here. The Acts of Union quite clearly and the subsequent case law of the early 18th century, the years afterwards, make quite clear in both the Edinburgh and London courts that we ceased being the sum of our parts in 1707 and for the Irish also in 1801 with the uh, unification of the parliaments. And this was tried in the courts over money, over citizenship, over uh, uh, immunities and entitlements. There was no longer such a thing as an Englishman or a Scot at law after 1707. There was two abolished parliaments, a new parliament, a new currency, a new legislature and a new union citizen. Uh, absolutely. So let's go on with it then. They say, with the while the internal market has been enshrined in British law for only three centuries, which as Alex has just pointed out, is not the case, uh, the UK's accession to the then European Economic Community in 1973 saw European law take on a more direct role in providing the legislative underpinning for our economy. Uh, and then they go on to talk about, as you say, the, the subsequent uh, union with Ireland in 1801, and they quote, uh, what, it said, what that treaty said, that His Majesty's subjects of Great Britain and Ireland shall be entitled to the same privileges and be on the same footing as to encouragements and bounties and like articles being the growth, produce and manufacture of either country and generally in respect of trade and navigation in all ports and places in the United Kingdom and its dependencies and that in all treaties made by His Majesty, his heirs and successors with any foreign power, His Majesty's subjects of Ireland shall have the same privileges and be on the same footing as His Majesty's subjects of Great Britain. So this seems to be the basis on which uh, the UK government is currently claiming that the UK has an internal market. Uh, but then they go on to say this, Alex, uh, the UK is a unitary state with powerful devolved legislatures as well as increased increasing devolution across England. Now, a unitary state, a system of political organisation in which most or all the governing power resides in a centralised government in contrast to a federal state. But this is this statement, Alex, to me, is internally inconsistent. You can't be a unitary state if you've got powerful devolved legislatures uh, which are claimed to increase devolution. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that works. Yet again, Mike, it's uh, a fast one being pulled on us by the elegant, tricky use of language in Britain, which not even other countries go to our extent in. Um, if you know international law or Europe, uh, they increasingly talk about Britain as a uh, federal state, or at the most, they say a decentralised unitary state. These are different concepts in international law than a unitary state. We are no longer a unitary state, but we are pretending to be to our own citizens. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, and just to reinforce that, of course, uh, it was only a couple of weeks ago, and I don't have the exact quote, but uh, this is uh, Mark Drakeford, the uh, First Minister of Wales, who called Boris Johnson the English Prime Minister. Now, you might say that this is just uh, the First Minister of Wales making a statement about Wales. Uh, but no, I'm sorry, if you're the First Minister of Wales, you should know better than this. Um, Boris Johnson, of course, is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, or should be, and the United Kingdom is supposed to be a single country, or it should be. Um, but the, the devolution, as Brian has been highlighting for many, many uh, months and years now, is uh, breaking the country up, breaking it apart. It's turning it into uh, an EU-style uh, Confederation. State. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so just briefly, Alex, because we're, we're absolutely out of time. 
Um, where does this where does this take us? If you know, on the basis that 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 this argument that's currently going on at the moment is is over the backstop or the front stop or whatever stop they want to call it these days. Uh, we're talking about the Irish the, the Irish border and the uh, the potential for a border down the Irish Sea. Um, but if if the UK is Britain up is, is broken up and regionalised in the EU model, then how do we how does that benefit us in, in any way if we end up being structurally the same as the EU? Uh, it doesn't benefit us at all, and Germany or German politicians are being utter hypocrites here, of course, uh, because they notoriously uh, enshrine or, or put on a pedestal their constitutional court at Karlsruhe to such an extent that they refuse to enact even EU law if it is in contravention of the national or federal basic law, often called the German constitution. So unlike the Netherlands or Austria, which give direct judicial primary to so-called international law, uh, Germany doesn't even do that for supranational EU law. Um, you know, so the, the, there's total hypocrisy going on. I think that the quickest thing we can do to give people a handle, because there's going to be a lot more back and forth about this international law stuff, is bear in mind that international law is a recent body of law entirely based on treaty agreements between sovereigns. The presumption that underpins it all is that sovereigns, that is executives, will force their national legislatures and their national judiciaries or juries, if we have them, um, to, uh, bind, to bind themselves by certain agreements, to set aside certain previous statutes or common law uh, in favour of the, what the executive has bound us to internationally by treaty. Now, what you put on screen a moment ago from the July document by the civil service makes clear that when the legislature speaks to the Crown and says in future treaty making, you will honour this and you will not cross that line, we are binding the Crown on its oath not to enter into subsequent treaties saying, I will direct the judges to stop obeying this law and to pretend they don't see this and to act as a foreign official in that case, uh, and likewise to, to limit the powers of the supposedly sovereign Westminster Parliament. So the main game that's going on here is international law is not law undifferentiated. It is a series of agreements from executive to executive over the heads of the national legislature and judiciary. Mm. If you bear that in mind, I think you'll be able to understand the ping pong that follows. Okay, well, we'll just end very quickly because we had very long news today, but really circumstances in the country justify it. Um, a lot of good work going on in the background by people who are challenging uh, what's been going on. And uh, we're going to give you really what's an exclusive on the fact that the Lloyds Banking Victims Group are now going public with their work. Uh, this is a press release. Now, it is dated August 2020, but it's uh, been held back and it has just been released today. So we're very pleased to be helping to push this out. So we can confirm that the initial details of investigations into high-level banking fraud undertaken by the Lloyds Bank Victims Group, supported by Thames Valley Police and Crime Commissioner Anthony Stansfield, ex-police CID members and other professionals is now being released to UK and international press and media. I'll get into the detail of what they're talking about on Monday, but just to make sure we're uh, helping to promote this. Uh, the document that they're dealing with at the moment is called the Financial Matrix, an investigation into whether senior individuals connected to common purpose have been negligent or carried out misconduct in public office whereby UK police authorities have either blocked or failed to investigate economic fraud by UK financial institutions 
in breach of the 2006 Fraud Act, the 1968 Theft Act, Bait and Switch, Forgery and Counterfeiting Act 1981, Conspiracy to Defraud and the 2010 Bribery Act. Uh, a lot of very, very um, complex investigation has gone on. Uh, this has been running now for, uh, I'm going to say, a couple of years, but finally it's starting to break surface. And this uh, points a finger at banking institutions at the highest level. Um, and what is being shown is just a massive pond of corruption. So we'll be reporting more about this over the coming days. But for those people who say, why isn't anybody doing anything? Here is a very brave group of ordinary people and professionals who've come together to do something about fraud in our banking industry. So we'll end on a high point there. Thanks very much for joining us. We will be back at the same time on Friday. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.